Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ, and then to be sanctuary to each other, and express sanctuary to this city. And so, for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Well, um, last week we um, started our look at this Everest of a book. If you don't know much about uh, Ephesians, uh, it is one of the great, just obviously spectacular books in the Bible. And um, I made the point that I think it's a universal human condition um, and thing that we all do to ask ourselves the question, who am I? From a really young age, we do that. I think it's a a good question. I think it's very healthy to sort of develop almost like a sense of self. The challenge that I pointed out was that, that we tend to pick labels as we ask ourselves the question, who am I? That lead to both either pride or despair, which is fairly a destructive kind of pendulating thing. Do you remember we talked about that last week when we're, when we're choosing the label Supermum or Mr. Businessman or whatever it might be? We tend to pendulate between pride and despair. But also I made this, the, the point that these sort of worldly labels that we can, these identities that we can choose are also very exhausting. They're very demanding. So they're both destructive pride and despair but they're also really demanding and I really want to laser in on that kind of exhaustion point today if you think I don't know if you've ever thought about that but one of the main reasons in life often you know Jesus says come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest and we're like great that sounds really really inviting Jesus and then our lives can feel anything but like that and Obviously, life is generally very busy, but there can be a deeper reason, which is if we are living um, with any label other than a Jesus label, it is very, very demanding. It demands that you perform in order to sustain it. So, for example, if you're into the Enneagram, I know you either love it or you hate it, but if you're into it and you're like, oh, I'm a one, which means I need things to be perfect, that can be a label. You know, if things aren't perfect, you, you just work harder and harder and harder. That label becomes demanding. Or if you're the helper and I need to be that label, that identity, that can become exhausting to always have to be the one that helps or the one that performs, which is something I identify with the number three. I talked also about my near sort of breakdown or at least burnout six years ago when I was leading a church in Canterbury. And again, that was because I was fundamentally living from a place of a a label that was like successful pastor mode. And so when the church stopped growing and there were some challenges, um, it was like I was sort of dying. And um, my my identity was very, very caught up in, in that. It was exhausting. So it's a very... So what I'm trying to get at today is that if you live... You might want to write this down. With any label, any identity other than a Jesus label, 
It is exhausting. And what is, that's why um, it's so glorious when we start to look at this book of Ephesians and Paul, who had lots of um, very impressive labels before he became a Christian. He was a Jew of Jews and was born in a particular like tribe and he was super clever. And, but he, he, he actually wants us to understand that when you live with any other label than a Jesus label, even the ones he had, it's, it's exhausting. And part of the Christian journey is understanding who, who we are now with our new labels in the context, listen, of who God is and who God has made us to be and what God has done. Remember that chart we looked at last week that the Bible's about those four things, who God is and what, there we go, thank you, that was quick. What Who God is, what God has done, who God has made us to be. And even box four, what we do is empowered by the presence of God. <laughs> so you see, when our lives are mar- marked by exhaustion, something isn't quite right. We're not living with our eyes on who God is, his identity, uh, what God has done through the cross and the resurrection, who God has made you to be freely and by grace, uh, and then living in the good of the power of the Spirit. And so today we come, whoops, we come to this incredibly important two words that communicate um, more succinctly than anywhere else the nature that every single Jesus label we have. And from next week on, we'll start getting really specific, you know, that we are redeemed, we are children of God, we are holy. There is one more key preparatory thing we need to realize, friends, which is this. Every single Jesus label is a gift. It's a gift. It requires absolutely no work to receive it, to stay in it, to sustain it. It is scandalous. That is why Jesus said his yoke, his way, he modelled it. Jesus refused any labels that people would try and give him. You know, when his mum was like, hey, go and save that, that, that uh, wedding. He said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to receive like the kind of the performer label. I'm going to see what my father in heaven wants. Jesus modelled and offers to us a set of identity labels that are entirely a gift from someone else. This phrase that we're going to look at here to be in Christ, it is almost impossible to overstate how important it is. And if you want a real simple beginner guide as to why it's so important, the first thing I want us to understand, if you take nothing away from today, is this, is that whilst every other label in the world demands you perform, every Jesus label, because we are now in Christ, is a gift. And I will unpack why that's so powerful. Let's refresh ourselves. Let's read again. Uh, the same verses we looked at last week, and the last two words are where we're going to z- zoom in today. Uh, Ephesians 1, chapter 1, and uh, verse 1. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. See, already he's pointing to someone else. Notice that. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. How, Jesus? How? Say it with me. In Christ. Jesus, we invite your sweet, wonderful, refreshing presence today. Come and just make this both really simple and really weighty and life-changing. I just confess, Jesus, um, I always feel like I need you whenever I try and speak. But I'm even more aware of it through Zoom and how strange a vehicle it is to try and communicate. So I ask for your profound help, Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, my friends. So why is it such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that all these identities that we're looking at over this over this series come as a gift? Why is that a big deal? There's two reasons that we need to realize here. The first is because it leads to grace and experience and enjoyment of grace towards yourself and towards others. And secondarily, because it leads to peace towards yourself and towards others. That's why it's so interesting in verse 2. Did you notice Paul says here, grace and peace to you from God our Father. That's very, very important. Those two words, grace and peace, are not just vague words, my dear friends. This is what Jesus Christ died on a cross for to give to you, not just in your head, but in your being. And a key way that we live increasingly tasting grace and tasting peace is through knowing our identity in Christ is entirely a gift. Okay, so let me just unpack this for a moment. First of all, then, it leads to living in grace. Any label other than a Jesus label, any label, leads not to grace, but leads to at least three things. Frustration with yourself and others, anger, and impatience. All right, so if today you identify with frustration or anger or impatience, there's a chance that you are functionally living, trying to sustain a label that is not a Jesus label, that's a gift label. Because when you are doing that, when you are trying to live through that identity, it leads to frustration, anger, and identity. Let me just give an illustration. So um, I've noticed in one of my beautiful daughters, in the mornings, when she wakes up, if you're a dad, you get this, you come in and um, you see your kids, and I'm sure all of you feel this all the time, but you come into your kids and they're still asleep or they're just waking up. And they, I often, I'm just like overwhelmed at how beautiful they are. I love it that they're sleepy, that they're kind of groggy. And one of my daughters in particular, I go in and over the last season, I've noticed that when she gets out of bed, she's very quickly gripped with a sense of frustration and almost anger at herself and a real like impatience. But first thing in the morning. And she has to get her bed in a certain sort of uh, way. She has to have it really neat. The room has to be in a certain way. And I'm, and I'm there as her dad, looking at my beautiful daughter, thinking, darling, what, you are just 
a little miracle. You're gorgeous in every way. I love you. I, I, I'm so pleased to see you. I've missed you as I've been asleep, genuinely. And yet she cannot. It's like that kind of emotion I have towards her just bounces off her. I look at her and am just like undone with affection. Okay. But that sort of label I, I see in her as her father she is not living in the good of. For whatever reason, she is wanting this label of like the neat one, the in-control one, the efficient one, and it's now 7.10, Dad, and I need to be getting going. Now, I have no idea where this has come from, and that is for a whole nother series. The point being, as I looked to her, I felt God saying, Tom, you can be exactly the same. You see, if, if we don't... You see, I have tremendous affection for her and I see her with nothing but love. But if she does not agree with that, she is, listen, she is effectively at war with herself. And isn't it interesting that Paul, he says, actually, before you become in Christ, you'll know this, many of you, um, if every single person who's ever born is originally first physically born into Adam's race it says in romans chapter 5 that we are all born into adam that means he was your great 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 grandfather i don't know who your grandfather was whether he was spanish irish scottish your greatest grandfather can i say this was a crook (laughs) he was a gangster okay i'm slightly overdoing it but you need to understand your, your your the bible says that no matter what nation you're from your actual ancestry.com is a pretty dark one. Now, it's not all bad. Adam was still totally beloved of God. But this is the big idea, is that Adam, when he sinned, he infected and affected every single human that was ever born. Now, think about that for a moment. Adam, effectively, when he chose to mistrust God, he went to war with God. And he went to war with others. And he went to war with himself. What is sin? Sometimes we think of sin as like these isolated things that we do. No, no, no. Sin is a deep inherited state of mistrust of God that flows into ultimately every area of your life. That is the effect of being in Adam. We're at war. Now, that's really important that you understand. This is, this is like Christianity 101. It's amazing how, how uh, infrequently I hear people talking about this. But it's very important that, you know, I said last week, when you become a Christian, you're, you're now two people living in two places with two perspectives. Your old self was born in Adam, inherited with Adam. That nature came to all of us, whether you like it or not. And, uh, sort of a, the ultimate genetic disease of war, war with God. War with others, war with self. And that's what I see in my little daughter. And that's what I see in myself. When we are living with any label, say this with me, any label other than a Jesus label, it leads to war. It's actually, there's a kind of war within our hearts, which is why we feel so much um, frustration and and anger and and just impatience. And all the time our father looks at us like I look at my daughter and I yearn for her to see herself as I see her. This whole series is about us bit by bit. If you're a Christian here today, realizing 
that God wants you to see yourself as he sees you. Wow. Wow. And it starts before we even get specific with the labels, child of God, beloved of God, son of God, daughter of God. Before we even get specific from next week, it's so key you realize that it is a grace gift of God. If there is war in your soul, it's some degree, frustration, anger, and impatience, it's a sign that you're not yet living in the good of how your father sees you. You're like my daughter who is almost letting that love bounce off you. You're not agreeing with your father. I I know I live like this. I can be so subtly hard on myself. Anyone here see it? You can show me, you can wave. You're allowed to do that even if you're muted. If you feel like at times you feel like you're always behind and you're not being efficient enough and there's just this nagging sense of almost like failure, that can be truly a sign that you're not living seeing yourself as Christ sees you. Friends, listen to me, listen. Jesus Christ, because you are now in him, and you know that phrase, in Christ, turns up 40 times in the book of Ephesians alone. That's right, you, you didn't, that wasn't an internet glitch. That's true, 40 times in one book. 170 times in the entire of the New Testament. Why is it such an important theme? Some th- theologians say it's the number one theme of the New Testament. To be in Christ, it is because, first of all, you need to understand the nature of the one that you are now connected with cosmically. You are now in Christ, the one that you're most close to, even closer to you than your spouse if you're married, is gracious. He is not demanding. He is not watch-tapping. He is not irritated with you. He's not barking orders, get out of bed, you're behind. That voice is not the voice of Jesus, my friends. Look at him in the New Testament. He oozes grace. He's never hurried. As John Mark Comer's book brilliantly reminds us, there's an unhurriedness that Jesus has. That's why love, the first characteristic of love, my friends, is it is, say it with me, begins with P, rhymes with patience. Patience. Love is patient. Man, I know this is so fundamental, but learning to live in your identity as a gift means that you agree with your gracious new lover. Now, I say that word carefully, but it is actually biblical. I know that's strange, particularly for some gents here, but it's actually true that one of the most exquisite metaphors in the Bible to be in Christ means you are now, in a sense, married to Christ. And listen, if he is gracious to you, if he is kind to you, then he wants you to throw off that self-loathing, that self-hatred, that self-destructive drivenness from the label of being perfect and say, no, 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 I want you to receive this new identity that you are in Christ. You are, listen, your closest friend is smiling and joyful and kind. Yes, as Sean reminded us, Old Testament, we learn about the fear of the Lord, particularly through Mount Sinai. And then Jesus says now in Hebrews, you have not come to a mountain to be afraid of him. Now you come to Mount Zion, to festive angels in innumerable gatherings. Hallelujah. We come to Jesus. Mercy has triumphed over judgment. Man, it's such good news, my friends. And, and, And this is the thing is that we hear in our heads and I can tell we all go, hmm, doesn't really affect me emotionally. And listen, I want, I believe Jesus would say that 
is okay. There is an unhurried process, a lifetime of him convincing us day by day that he is gracious. To be in Christ means that my closest friend, even closer to me than Josie is to me, as much as I love her, is gracious and kind, and he's never, ever giving up on me learning that. In the book, anyone here read the book Redeeming Love? I want to say, now don't be put off by the cover, it's, it is a story based on the book of Hosea, and the basic idea is this, is that there is a young girl whose mum is a prostitute. Her father doesn't even want anything to do with her. Her mum's a prostitute because, to be honest with you, she has like no other option. And her mum dies when this little girl is eight. And she is left alone uh, at this harbour, aged eight. And tragically, a a, a horrible man comes, picks her up and rapes her and becomes her pimp. And from a little age, this girl is thrust into being um, a prostitute. It's it's stomach churning. And the story shows how over those years, this little girl had no other option. It was like sheer survival for her was just having to do what these men wanted her to do. And it's it's so awful. But there is this amazing moment where this Jesus-type figure called Michael Hosea, who loves Jesus, and he sees her, he falls in love with her, and God says to him, you are to marry her. And to cut, you know, spoiler alert, if you don't know, if you don't know the story, but basically he marries her. She, 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 he marries her. And the crux of the story is about this incredibly familiar tension that I resonate with, where you have this woman who for like 20 years has all she's known is like selling herself to have some sense of security and safety and some kind of quasi love and power through these men using her. You know, at least she has some clothes and she has sort of enough food on her table. But it's never real love. And now the picture changes as she's married to Michael Hosea, who is so kind and so gracious. But this is the key. Because of like 10, 20 years of previous life of giving herself, she doesn't almost have the hardwiring to access and to trust this guy's love. It's, it's an incredible picture of what it is for us as Christians to almost be two people having our old life where we have been used to serving others, doing others. If you're an Enneagram three, like me, I perform for others. And it says, it's like a type of prostitution. I'll be the person that you want me to be, sir, out of fear. And actually our lives are an enslavement. We are, we are given to whatever it might be to being perfect or to being the helper or to being the one that is unique And so we give ourselves to these other things and they are terrible masters. And when you become a Christian, and in this story you see it so beautifully, is that she doesn't know how to receive and to trust him. She doesn't doesn't almost have the hardwiring, but this is the key. He never gives up on her. He never gives up on her. She even leaves him at one point. But he, as Christ does with us, bit by bit, day by day, He persists in being gracious to her. Her identity, as you see in that story, is a sheer gift. She doesn't deserve such an incredible husband, but she has one and he's never going to give up on her. So so first of all, then, let me ask you this question as we come to the halfway point is as you look at your heart, where might there be some areas 
of war. Where there's maybe frustration with yourself, um, maybe some anger or impatience. Even just now, just take 10 seconds. Are there areas where you are, rather than living in the gracious smile of your new lover, you are living, um, being driven by an, by scrabbling after us a, a label, whatever it might be. What is that label, and what's it? How is it creating war in you even now? Just take ten seconds. <clears throat> so how? So how does this work? How does being in Christ as a gift? So I just want you almost to picture in your minds the first step, the reason it leads to grace is almost like the face of Jesus is not a demanding, uh, perfection demanding, expecting lover. He is full of grace and kindness. And actually he says he wants you to agree with his love of you. <laughs> now, I know we can think self-love is a narcissistic thing, and of course, that is a, that's a dark side of it. But you know, one of the biggest challenges we have is we don't live in the love that Jesus has for me. Just as my daughter doesn't live in that, she doesn't see herself with love in the mornings. I just pray even now that something of that grace of Jesus towards you would actually just sink into your heart you go do you know i am someone i am loved by jesus and i agree with that i agree with that secondarily it leads to what paul says here grace from our god and father and also peace now when someone listen if if that if jesus isn't like a demanding efficiency you know expecting god if he is kind and secure and he doesn't actually need anything from you isn't that amazing he doesn't he doesn't need anything from you <laughs> hallelujah if he's like that if that's his posture of grace what it produces in you my friends is is peace it's peace like a river it is peace there is actual peace available you see it, we're permeable beings aren't we we are designed to be absorbers when you're a little baby you absorb your mum milk your mum's milk as you grow up you absorb the atmosphere of your family you can't cognitively put words to it but you're absorbing absorbing and we are designed to absorb the personality of the person who's closest to us which is jesus now an actual person and that because he's a prince of peace it's meant to produce peace in us as we realize our identity now is forever changed. Listen, you might want to write this down as well. If you are not living primarily with a Jesus label, okay, if you're unconsciously trying to sustain another label, it doesn't just lead to those first three things of frustration, anger, and impatience. It also leads to this, to fear, anxiety, and insecurity if you are marked by fear and fear can hide subtly but if you are marked by fear anxiety and insecurity you are almost certainly somehow more gripped by sustaining some kind of non-jesus label than you realize so let me illustrate that a few months ago at the beginning of covid i did a video a six minute video um just sort of 
uh, lots of leaders were doing it and I thought, oh, I should probably do one. And I did a, vid- I did a video about like, are we in rest mode or are we in work mode? Hmm, I don't know. I'm more confused. And uh, amazingly, it kind of, it, it didn't go viral. That's a total over-exaggeration. In my tiny brain, it did. It, was, it had a kind of couple of thousand views or something. And lots of people were like, oh, wow, this is really great. Can't wait to hear more, Tom. And as, as this came in, I noticed in my heart an anxiety and a, a fear and an insecurity. And this like perfectionist like bubbling up on me of like, but what if my second post doesn't get as many views? And what if you know, people don't really like it as much? And I just got totally paralyzed. And I realized I was sat, you know, I can say with the best of them, oh, I'm in Christ. But my actual identity, the thing I was actually unconsciously living for was, I don't know what you'd even call it, successful YouTube pastor man or whatever. That was what I was suddenly, I was genuinely fearful and anxious and insecure about. So I wonder what it might be for you. Where can you trace even in your mind, if there's fear or anxiety or insecurity, just even now, it, does it, where does it root down? If it's up at the surface here, where might it be rooted? Is it possible that there's some other label maybe that you want to sustain other than a Jesus label, other than one that's gifted, that requires you performing to keep it alive? Because you see, Paul wanted the church in Ephesus. It's funny. He goes on to say, I don't want you to be tossed and, and, and moved around. He says, I want you to be rooted and established in the love of God. So if there's fears and anxiety and insecurities, friends, let the Spirit show you where that is rooted and coming from. And he wants to get in there like a gardener and he wants to get his hands in right now. I believe it. I really do. And he wants to show you, Tom, you don't need to be some internet pastor man. You're my beloved son, for goodness sake. Don't, don't start getting anxious or fearful or insecure. Just as it says in Hebrews, you know, throw off everything that hinders. And you see, what, what Paul is going to show us here in this incredible, like, feast of identity is that when you start to understand the gifted identities that you're given, honestly, it's almost laughable laughable that we would scrabble after these kind of other labels like oh super dad or super mum or internet pastor man or businessman when we start to see the glory and the weight of these kind of labels these identities that paul's going to say when he says you're holy you're beloved you're saints you're my sons you're my daughters you're redeemed you're my inheritance these are like so you know on the if you've got scales in mind they're so much more magnificent and more true over you than any label that requires constant maintenance do you know one of the most um profound things you need to understand that brings peace in terms of your label is that you are now part of a royal family now i know some of you anyone here an anglophile i know you're there Lots of you are around, you love it. Um, one of the benefits of growing up in, uh, in Old England is that you are kind of around the idea of royalty. And um, one of the things you notice about royal, royal people often, because I know so many, <laughs> but you just, you can see it, is there is often actually 
a quiet sense of peace and security in them that is just a gift because of who they are. Because they have received this identity through sheer grace. They literally just were born. They don't ever need to try. They don't need to be spectacular. You know, so, do you ever notice sometimes it talks about some of like Prince William and Prince Harry and like, oh, did you know that they're in the Royal, uh, uh, you know, the Royal Air Force or in the army? And if you're anything like me, you're like, well, that's fine. But I'm never, ever going to be like, oh, wow, he's a great helicopter pilot. The main thing I know about them is he's royal. It's his identity. I mean, he does that thing. You know, he does it. and He's probably really good at it. But the thing that you know about these guys, the real big thing is that they're royal right? And that identity can never be taken away. It can never be removed, no matter what their box for life is like, no matter what they do. My dad works at um, uh, what's called a stately home. It's like a palace. And he's a guide. And he will often walk uh, the mile from the entrance up to this big, amazing stately home palace. And on a few occasions, he said, as he's walking up, a car will pull up and it's actually the lady of the house who is connected to the royal family. She's aristocracy. She's called Lady Victoria Lethem. But what, and she will often say, oh, hello, Rob. Would you like a lift? And um, my dad most of the time says, no, no, thank you. I, I'd like to walk. But on occasion, he's received a lift from her. And what he says is this, and he said it very politely, is he's, he's always noticed how old and in a way normal her car is. And inside the car, it's not particularly even clean, honestly. They often have dogs and they're not always particularly clean. And her clothes, honestly, are just, they're good quality, but they're not particularly new. And she hasn't even really got much makeup on. And she's just very like, she's just, there's not a scrap of trying to perform. And that is just true. I can't pretend I know lots of royal people, but there is something consistent about people who are born into that situation where she knows deep down, like a river, she knows that she is royalty and it doesn't depend on what she does. It doesn't depend on what car she does. Her identity, her identity is 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 her predominating thing. Imagine even now, just for fun, a royal family, right? And there you have the king on the throne, and, and, and aren't all royal, you know, pictures we have in stories and stuff, they're always very calm, aren't they? You know, you think of a king and a queen and they're calm and they're peaceful. They're not having to try. You think about the princes and the princesses and there's a calmness, there's a peace about because their identity is settled. And the Bible says that as Christians, you are part of a royal priesthood. And um, just imagine they're with me, rather, you see this royal family, and then suddenly there's one prince who has an amazing robe on and royal robes, but he's frantically texting away, he's sweaty, he's doing lots of different things, and it's almost like he's frantically, maybe he's, I don't know, on the side, some kind of like businessman or something. And in that picture, you'd be able to see so clearly, hey friend, you don't need to do that. You, you don't need to sustain all these other things, you're royalty. You can just relax, put the phone down, and enjoy your royal status, your identity. And what this means is, and I'll, with this I'll finish, what this means is you do not need to be famous 
which is a massive lie of this generation that you need to be famous. You do not need to be rich. You do not need to be even successful in a worldly sense. When you understand your identity as a royal son or daughter, wow, I am now, you know, the Bible says you're born once physically into Adam and then you're born again in Christ. You're born into a royal family. You are now royalty. What that means is wherever you go, whatever you do, whether you are well-known or obscure, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, your identity as a royal child of the king, a royal son of God, means that you are now forever, forever secure, forever secure. Let me just give you this final illustration. I, when I was uh, 19, I did a gap year and I lived in Canada and I was on Vancouver Island and I was hitchhiking up to get a ferry. And this guy picked me up with an old truck and I jumped in and we were chatting away and he told me his name and he told me, uh, which I promptly forgot. And then he said in this 1960s, he hitchhiked around America and he just said, it was just me and my old Martin guitar. And I was like, wow, Martin guitar. They're the, the best. If you don't know much about guitars, they're like the just, you know, Rolls Royce. And I said, wow, you, you had a, a Martin. And he looked at me and he said, didn't you hear what my name was? My name is John Martin. I'm part of the Martin family. I make Martin guitars. And I was like, what? I mean, I was in the middle of nowhere, age 19, in this truck with this slightly crazy guy type guy. And he was like, listen, have you got time before your ferry, before I drop you off? Can I show you my workshop? I was like, yes. And I'm thinking, this guy can't, this cannot be true. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, we go off to his house in the garden. He's got this big family. His little five-year-old kid is playing a plastic piano brilliantly, like Jules Holland, uh, a very good pianist, in a paddly pool of water. He's playing away like Dax was, and he's amazing. And we go through an orchard, and he looks at me, and at the bottom of the orchard, there's this, there's this workshop, and he says, Tom, I, I, I need to trust you because this isn't insured. What you're about to see stays with you as a fellow musician. And I'm like, mum's the word. And we go in, and I kid you not, there was this incredible workshop, and there were all these half-made Martin guitars. Now, this is the point. He was obscure in the middle of nowhere. No one knew him, apart from the people he was making guitars from. And yet he knew, I'm a Martin. I'm part of, not a royal family, but in guitar world, almost. And he had this sense of peace and security, even in the middle of nowhere, even though he wasn't making loads of guitars, he wasn't big and commercial and sort of, uh, you know, his, his growth curve wasn't exponential. He was just a bloke who loved what he did. But his identity, he was a Martin, and that freed him to be in relative obscurity, doing in some ways a humble thing. But there was this sense of like peace that he had. Don't you want that? Now, that's just an illustration. As we finish, we're going to sing in Christ alone again because it shows us and anchors us. Remember those two points? Why does this matter? Number one, we gain, we gain a sense of grace as we understand the kindness of Jesus, the grace of Jesus to us, his, now, his lover. Yeah, we're married to him and he's kind to us. He's gracious. And number two, your identity is now as a royal one, which is safe and secure, and you can never, ever lose it. So take it away, Sean. 
Let us worship Jesus and thank him for who he is and what he's done and who he, who he has made us to be.